Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 566. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Minus one out there, me polytunnel garden allotment's devastated. <laughs> two days last week, we had minus two. Yeah, we have, honestly, we have had the best late summer, well, summer all round. Yeah, it was a bit kind of hot, a bit dry, and but it lasted and it just went on. And honestly, last week I had sunflowers growing and everything, and then... Two days, two days of frost, minus two, the whole thing. Me Christmas potatoes, <gasps> devastated. Have a look over on YouTube, Tony C. Smith on YouTube, and you'll see me and Nick. Do subscribe over there as well. Well, listen, December, man, <laughs> how quick. I was just walking down the stairs the other day, and it was blooming February, December already. <gasps> this is just crazy, isn't it? The nearer... 52, you know, the nearer now I get to that bloody front line, man, it's just shooting close. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have some good news with Patreon. I think that whole hullabaloo where every month they kind of just crashes and burns and they're not, their banking system doesn't seem to get it right and we're losing subscribers. This week we lost which I thought would be kind of an, an average one, round about four folks, which is what what I would expect. You know, you, you, you kind of stick on on Patreon and then you get your bill one week, one month and you go, ooh, am I still, am I still subscribed to that bloody idiot? <laughs> is that, I'm still doing that. And you, you get a few fall away. But for the last, I'm going to say six months, is it six months, something like that? It's been like 30, 30 plus each time, and it just it doesn't have just bang into you, man. Just make everything two hundred and fifty pound, right? Overdrawn all month. This month I've been in the bloody accounts with Starships over from from the last kind of hit on. Do you know what I mean? You pay more on bloody bank fees than doing anything else. Two hundred and fifty, but thank God. It's just got paid this month, and that's just sorted out. But it takes £250. I haven't got, you know, it's just, it's gone before I even kind of turn around and look at it. Anyway, if you can support, it would be fantastic. I know I'm waffling on, but it's a little bit of good news, and it'd be more good news if you came over. I want to say a massive thank you to Jake, sir. Jake, you are a big hug. Give you that, a big bear hug. Give you a hug. Thank you so much. Rosaline McCarthy. Again, oh, Rosaline, man. Thank you. Oh, you are a star. Seth Cochran. I work with someone whose surname's Cochran as well. You don't know Alfie Cochran, do you? <laughs> I hope not. But yeah, Seth, thank you. Oh, listen, big, huge thank you. Thank you so much. And Simon. Simon Gladwell. It is fantastic and it is an honour. It is truly an honour. Thank you so much. Everyone who's kind of come over and kind of propped it up. We are now standing at 431. So that is fantastic. Let's come on now. Momentum's going. Two, two 
dollars, is it? Yeah, two dollars, and you get no adverts in the shows. None of me waffling on. None of the adverts. Just pure science fiction enjoyment. Oh, there's other things as well. We're going to start the new Red Dwarf soon as well, and we've got that new serialization book by John Brunner coming out very, very soon as well. I'll let you know about that in the near future. Right then. Tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is the main fiction, A Fear of Falling by Dennis Mombawa. It's original to Starship Sofa. Ho, 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 ho. And a little squeal. Oh, squeal. 52. I'm squealing like an eight-year-old. Got Amy H. Sturgis on as well. Fantastic. So we'll get into the main fiction, A Fear of Falling by Dennis Mombawa. The story, like I say, original, Starship Sova. Dennis currently lives in Colombo, Sri Lanka, as a writer of speculative fiction, textual experiments. Now, Dennis, I like that. Textual experiments and poetry. He also works as a freelance researcher on climate change adaptation, sustainable urban development, and autism spectrum disorder. He is the co-publisher of the German magazine for experimental fiction, Die Novelle. Think is it? Is that how you am? <laughs> the magazine of experimentalism. There you go. And has published fiction and non-fiction in various magazines and anthologies. His German novel, The Mask Trade, came out in 2017, and you can find them on two links, which I'll put on the website as well. The story is narrated by Tatiana Gray. Tatiana is a critically acclaimed actress of stage, screen and the audio booth. She has been nominated for dozens of fancy awards, but hasn't won a single damn thing. <laughs> Tatiana, when I read that over, I loved that. Hey, it's, it's not about that. It's not about the awards. She went to NYU and lives in Brooklyn, New York. And you can find her at tatianagray.com. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. A Fear of Falling by Dennis Mombauer. Narrated by Tatiana Gray. The shuttle bay opened, and the automated voice of the ship reminded them to debark quickly and orderly, to not leave anything or anyone behind. Stay close. Join your hands. Janara tried to keep her family together. Grandfather, the four cousins, her younger brother, her older brother, Uncle Yabden, and stepped out onto the ramp. As she tried to move down, she noticed the architectural scale of the camp first, and its foreignness second, followed by the smell, the noise, the incredible crowd of people. There were faces everywhere, their skin dark with dried dust and engine oil, and they were watching the refugees getting off the shuttle, some of them curious, some sympathetic, and some hostile, as if the new arrivals were intruders on already occupied territory. Graded catwalks led away in different directions, and Janara chose one at random, too overwhelmed by this new environment to evaluate her options. Nobody had told them that the camp would be like this, a derelict factory platform floating above a sea of clouds, several miles of creaking metal, rust, and petrified machinery. It was far bigger than she had imagined, 
and unsuited as a shelter for all these refugees. Everything was industrial in scale and manufacturing, with narrow corridors, heavy safety doors, sharp edges and no comfort, a wasteland of metal and stained plastic. People sat on railings like birds, squatted together in gutted factory halls and slept on the floor. They found shelter in ventilation shafts and under-towering communication arrays, got warmth from rising steam or diminished reactors, and gathered medical supplies by plundering first aid boxes. Janara maneuvered her family, the survivors who had made it to the shuttle as well as the memory of their dead kin, through the wilderness of the floating platform, a long distance, until she found a free space to rest, their new home away from home, surrounded by an uncountable multitude of strangers and cloud-covered nothingness. After the first few horrible nights, the family settled into a daily rhythm. Every morning, they all swarmed out in search of food and information, like a primitive tribe of hunter-gatherers, almost reverting back to the life of their very distant ancestors. Food was easy to come by if you had something to barter, and very difficult if you had not. There were caches of survival rations still hidden all over the platform, but finding them meant a lengthy expedition into its dangerous bowels. Water could be found in long-abandoned and now-rediscovered washrooms, their electrical lights flickering on and dying off. But there was no source of fresh food, except for the occasional supply shuttles. Information, on the other hand, fumed up everywhere, like smoke around an active volcano. Everyone had a story, and everyone was eager to share. The war had ended, some said, and the new administration was organizing a barge fleet to bring the refugees home. Others claimed the war had engulfed more nations in a maelstrom of bizarre weapons, altering reality and consuming the very lands the refugees wanted to go back to. The old government was purported to have been overthrown for good, to have won the war, lost the war, to be stronger than ever, or have never existed at all. Janara even heard some cryptic allusions and far-out tales that this wasn't the real camp at all, or that it was an immense prison transport, or a syndicated survival game. Many other refugees came from different parts of the country, in their clothing, customs, and tongue were alien to Janara, but she still found enough people to talk to, do little transactions with, and form a kind of fleeting bond. She spent most of her day exploring and establishing contacts, and only when it started to get dark, she made her way back. Every evening, the family met back up at the point of their departure to make camp for the night, and every evening, Janara heard the same stories. We should never have left. I tell you, I was a surgeon back in the homeland, doing excellent work for good money, her uncle reminded them all. I had a house, you know, a big one at that, with a bromeliad garden and a hectonic library. I should never have let my brother talk me into this. I could have maybe worked for the army, or the other army. They were all in need of doctors. He slumped down again, and the regular tirade of complaints began. Grandfather told them about his dripping teeth, a grotesque disease he had caught on his expeditions back when he was 20 years younger and still in the service. 
Gennaro's older brother had invariably gotten into some fight, while the younger siblings had instigated the cousins to steal information, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. When she had had enough, Gennaro separated herself from the group again to just stare out into the night. And so the days went by, turned into weeks, and dragged on. No end seemed to be in sight for their exile. But finally, something changed. Something that affected Janara, her family, and all the other refugees trapped together on this platform. A strange sickness had begun to spread. The sickness didn't have any definite set of physical symptoms, and the mode of its distribution was unknown. When people contracted it, it always started with erratic behavior, an unusual manner of speaking, new mannerisms, a changed body language, or the asking of peculiar questions. And then, the afflicted would climb a railing or wander to the edge of an old landing platform and jump straight down into the sky. The first few cases were easy to dismiss as accidents or just someone giving up. But it became clear that there was an epidemic spreading in their midst. Has nobody ever tried to get off? Maybe sneaking into one of the transport ships? Janara had tracked down one of the oldest refugees that shared her tongue, offered him a day's worth of survival rations, and asked questions. There had to be a way off this platform, and before she or her family got infected, she needed to find it. She couldn't imagine falling down into the clouds, the air ripping at her clothes, her hair, her skin, with nothing to hold on to if her mind came back during the fall, no way to save herself. She could hardly bear to look at the clouds, to look at this opaque layer that never thinned out so she could see the land below, just drifted by in an endless procession of white and gray, like a river under a bridge. Yes, sure. But the shuttles are fully automated, and they don't leave until their detectors show there's no organic matter on board. Presumably it's to stop their robot brains from starting before all the refs have disembarked, but it also prevents blind passengers. What about the hull? Could you attach something um, to hold onto outside? The old man examined her small body. The surface is too smooth, and you wouldn't survive the flight. No, there is only one way to get off this platform. To wait until something changes with the war and the transports come to pick us up. Janara wasn't ready to give up. Not when she thought about her family, the sickness and the unimaginably long way down. Well, then we have to contact somebody, right? To tell them about the sickness. To tell them we need help. There are so many communication installations here. One of them has to work. Doesn't it? The old man hesitated. It is possible, yes. He would have to find intact equipment and know how to use it and hope that somebody is listening on the other side. Might be worth a shot, I guess. It took Janara two days of methodical exploration to find an entrance to one of the communication arrays on the top deck, rising as tapering spires with a forest of antenna on top. The communication equipment inside was archaic, with touch screens that glowed and washed out green as Janara laid her hand on it. She activated something and moved a few regulators, then spoke into the microphone. 
Can anyone hear me? I'm calling from the refugee camp on the old factory platform. Is anyone there? There was not even static coming out of the speaker, just a series of low beeps, like a variant of Morse code. Hello? Will you please answer? I'm calling from the refugee camp, and we need your help. The beeps seemed to stop their repeating pattern for an instant, as if they were evaluating Janara's input before they resumed the familiar sequence. She tried some other regulators and buttons, then she spoke again. Can you hear me now? There's some kind of epidemic here on the platform, and you need to send help to get us out of here. Do you understand? I don't know if the war is over or if we can return home, but you have to get us off this platform before we're all dead. Please. Janara had told them everything, even used the word she really didn't like, twice. But she had no confidence that her message was being received. If it wasn't, waiting would be useless and only increase their chances of catching the disease. If the message had gone through, there was still no guarantee that someone would send help. There was one other option she had heard about. More legend than fact. Only something tucked about in whispers and reverent secrecy. But it might be their last hope. We have to go. Janara looked into the faces of her family at their nightly gathering huddled around the dim light of an electrical bulb they had connected to some old wiring. A poor replacement for fire in this fuelless place. That's what I have been saying all along. Some of his former energy seemed to return to the eyes of her uncle. Or maybe it was just the light bulb's reflection, a trick of the unsteady illumination. We should never have left, and we can go back to the homeland. I can find work, I tell you, good work for decent money. The cousins and Janara's younger brother seemed scared, while her older brother nodded fiercely. If we stay here, we will all perish, one by one. And why should we? We have done nothing wrong. We shouldn't have had to flee. I have always worked hard, you know. Let's tell them to bring us back to the homeland with their shuttles. We can't, Uncle. There's nobody to talk to, no communication and the arrival shuttles won't leave with people on board. For a moment, Uncle Yobdan seemed ready to fight someone, to force the world to get him back home, before he crumbled down again. Then, it's hopeless. There might be another way. We can't leave with the shuttles, and we can't call for help. But maybe we can help ourselves, it's possible that there are other vessels right under our feet. Ancient repair craft or worker transports forgotten in some hangar. You can fly an atmosphere ship, Grandfather, can't you? The old man blinked in surprise, then nodded. Sure, I can still do that, at least over short distances. Haven't forgotten all I've learned in the service, not yet. Then it settled. We go into the corridors below, we find a vessel, and leave the camp with it. All together. Everyone agrees? No one raised objections against her plan, and so Janara found herself at the helm of a small expedition. A few hours later, descending with flashlights and all their belongings, 
into the creaky corridors of the platform. They passed through the upper levels, which were occupied and crowded with refugees attending their various businesses, sleeping, eating, bartering, gossiping, washing their clothes, telling stories, or just sitting there, passing time, waiting for something to change. Then, as the family got lower, the corridors, low, ugly things of metal beams and exposed strutting, artificial bones running through a long dead body, emptied until they didn't come across living things anymore. It was silent down here, with the constant laboring of the massive structure and their own footsteps, the only sounds echoing through the air. Too late, Janara thought about implementing a system, about marking their path to find a way back up again, but in all honesty, she didn't want to go back up, to the mass of people, to the brutal emptiness of the sky and the sicknesses invisible spread. There were no daytimes and no functional watches down here, but at some point they had to rest and make camp in the corner of a colossal factory floor because Grandfather and the cousins couldn't walk any further. Janara wasn't able to determine what had been manufactured here. The turned-off and stagnant machinery was just an agglomeration of cogs and conveyor belts, furnaces and dangling cable boxes to her. And she discovered no stacks of finished products anywhere in range of their lights. In the service, we walked everywhere. Grandfather leaned against the wall and drew circles in the dust with his fingers, as if he was trying to map out routes and constellations. We would walk all day. And then we would make camp with our supplies and equipment. Just now, Janara truly realized the risk of coming here without provisions, with no protection against the threats of dehydration, starvation, and getting lost. This whole endeavor might have been foolish, and every one of them could die here. But it was still better than waiting for the sickness to make them jump. The next day, if one could call it that, the family continued their trek downward, moving in a long line behind Janara as she found her path through the old industrial corridors. This floating factory was far bigger than she had ever expected, an abandoned labyrinth that must have turned out refined goods in enormous quantities once, manned by an army of workers and robots. Janara stopped as she heard a sound before them, a sound that terrified and simultaneously excited Janara. The sound of moving air, of wind outside the platform. It originated in a room large enough to have been a hangar at one time, with one wall open to the elements and the white clouds, but secured by a great grill. There were no ships here, but several consoles with displays, and Uncle Yobdan and Janara's older brother moved toward them. Maybe we can call something, or uh, get a layout of this place. What if I press this? The grill before the open wall moved up and opened, and Janara made a step back. What are you doing? We have no ship to fly out. I I'm just trying to figure this out. Anyone else have luck yet? Uh, Uncle Yobdan. He seemed worried, and Janara followed his look. Grandfather? We always walked everywhere. My teeth have stopped dripping now, because I, I, I get it. 
I understand. Grandfather turned away from the displays and strode across the room before anybody could stop him. This! He gazed out into the distance, right through Janara, her brothers, the cousins, even her uncle. She considered running toward him to pull him back, but he was right at the ledge, under the hoisted grill now, and she didn't want to get too close. Grandfather opened his mouth, closed it again, then made a final step that carried him over the edge and into the nothingness. There was no scream as he fell, only the steady rustling of the wind that swallowed his body, primal and uncaring. Grandfather! Janara's older brother made two leaps in Grandfather's direction, as if he wanted to jump after him, but stopped just short of the edge. Why? Why has he done that? How will we get out now? Who will fly the ship as if we ever find one? I don't think we need a ship anymore. Look at this. Uncle Yabdan made a gesture on his console, and the display showed electronic blueprints and diagrams. This camp is not what it seems. The clouds outside aren't real, just a holographic illusion. And this isn't a floating platform at all. Do you know what this means? He moved his fingers and zoomed in on a section of the tower's immense base. There is a way down on foot. They came out to an external stairwell at the tower base, and they knew that all of this balanced the platform much higher, beyond the hallucination of the impenetrable cloud ceiling. What is that smell? It's worse than on the platform. Maybe it's coming down from... The words trailed away as Janara's older brother stepped out beside her. They all saw what stretched to the horizon in all directions. It was so much bigger than the platform, filled with so many more people. But the family immediately recognized it. Layers of habitations covered the ground, decrepit warehouses, self-made huts, primitive houses and tents, built next to or upon each other towering up in immense termite mounds of tin, wood, and plastic, of flapping sheets, home-baked bricks, old concrete and rustling steel, of raw earth, and everything else Janara could think of. People moved in great waves between these structures, and along ropes and ladders, millions of them, a lot more than Janara's entire country's population. And their faces, their voices, their ragged clothes and desperation eliminated the last doubts about this place. It was a refugee camp. And the platform above the clouds had only been a tiny part of it. And there you go. Dennis, big thank you. Big thank you indeed. And Tatiana, a star. Thank you so much. I love it when we get originals to starships over. That's amazing. So, it is our little Ames! Ames! 
Hello, my friends. It is time for another look back into genre history. We're getting ready to put 2018 to bed, and I'll admit I've been thinking all year long about how to address one of the most important things in science fiction. That is, this year, the 200th anniversary of Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. I am on board with the school of thought that says Frankenstein is the beginning point of modern science fiction as we understand it today. That said, I have talked about Mary Shelley and Frankenstein multiple times before. Early on in my looking back segments, I did a series on proto science fiction, and that culminated in the eighteen eighteen publication of Frankenstein. Also on episode one hundred and seventy-nine, I offered a retrospective of the different stage adaptations of Frankenstein. I also offered a three-part series on the thought of Mary Wollstonecraft, the pioneering feminist political theorist, and how her work influenced her daughter's writings, Mary Shelley's writings, and those you can find on episodes three seventy-seven, three eighty-two, and three eighty-six. So I wanted to do something a little different to commemorate this important year, and I decided. It would be fun to offer my reviews of some of the films that chronicle that all-important year without a summer in 1816, when Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, she wasn't yet Mary Shelley, came up with the idea of Frankenstein in the first place. So I would like to review four particular films. From 1986, two from 1988, and one from 2017, that are essentially biopics of Mary Shelley, and that grouping there at the Villa Diodati in Switzerland, that included Lord Byron and Percy Shelley and Claire Claremont and Doctor Polidori, and of course Mary. The films I'm going to talk about aren't the only films that deal with this. You may recall even *The Bride of Frankenstein*, the James Whale classic from 1935, that brought Boris Karloff back to portray the creature. Well, that film also included Elsa Lanchester, portraying not only the bride but also Mary Shelley herself. So there have been multiple portrayals of Mary Shelley in relationship to the creation of Frankenstein on film, but I would like to keep my reviews here to four films,、uh, two that I like quite a lot and recommend, one that I love, and one that I'm hey kind of meh about. So let's start with meh and work up to love, shall we? Just. Before we begin, a brief reminder: Frankenstein was the product of a unique moment, a gathering in the summer of 1816, when a group of some of the greatest romantic minds of their time found themselves at Lord Byron's home at the Villa Diodati in Switzerland on Lake Geneva, and. There, during the wild weather of the year without a summer, because of climactic conditions created by great amount of ash in the atmosphere due to the eruption of a volcano halfway across the world, well, during these stormy 
nights, this group gathered together and determined they would each try to write a scary story to freak the others out. There was, of course, Lord Byron, mad, bad, and dangerous to know, already a rock star of romantic fiction and poetry, and with him his physician, Dr. John Polidori, who had sort of a love-hate relationship, uh, literally love and literally hate, with Byron. He had his own literary aspirations and desire to be taken seriously, but he never really became more than an employee in Byron's eyes. There was Percy Bysshe Shelley, the romantic poet, a rising star, and his then-lover, later wife, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, later Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. As yet, she had written nothing, but it was clear that she was born of literary royalty and quite able to step into the shoes of her parents, being the daughter of the great political theorist and literary mind William Godwin and the pioneering feminist political theorist Mary Wollstonecraft. And also with her came her stepsister, the daughter of William Godwin's second wife. Claire was in love with Lord Byron, and in fact pregnant with his child. Unfortunately for Claire, Byron came from the hit-it-and-quit-it school of romance, so that didn't work out. But the sexual tension among these five was just one aspect of the dark and stormy nights that they shared together. There was also alcohol and drugs, and there was also a shared fascination with Gothic storytelling. And so imagine these crazy, violent storms, this group of people gathered together, uh, reading these stories to each other, and the challenge comes forth that they should write their own stories. Dr. Polidori would write his own that became the first great vampire work of fiction in the English language. In his The Vampire, well, the vampire is pretty clearly Lord Byron himself. It's worth pointing out here that Polidori and Mary were the two who were untried as authors, and yet they are the ones who ended up producing works out of the challenge that was issued there in 1816. And, of course, Mary Shelley's work became Frankenstein. Okay, just so we have the cast of characters here so I can talk about these films, the first film, my meh film, comes from 1988. It is a Spanish film, although it was filmed in the English language, called Rowing with the Wind written and directed by Gonzalo Suarez. The casting is part of the problem with the film, I would say. I think some of the major characters are miscast. You have, as Lord Byron, Hugh Grant. And yeah, that's a bit of a problem for me. I'm not a hater by any stretch of the imagination, but I think his range is somewhat limited, or at least he has allowed it to become so over the course of his career. And although he did star in some works that I find very compelling, um, 1987's Morris is a good example there, although that film doesn't succeed because of him, I would say, but he doesn't bring it down either. But Byron is a very complex character. We have the Byronic hero, 
not only because of what Byron wrote, but because of who Byron was, the Byron persona, that forbidding genius. And Grant just can't deliver. Lizzie McInerney portrays Mary Shelley, Valentine Pelka, Percy Bysshe Shelley, Jose Luis Gomez is John Polidori, and Elizabeth Hurley, who was for a time linked with Hugh Grant, and is perhaps best known to modern audiences from Austin Powers, but she's had a long career, uh, is Claire Claremont. The problem begins with the casting and then just goes on from there. The film really doesn't know what it wants to do. One review on Rotten Tomatoes says, This is a work of, quote, music, scenery, girls getting out of bathtubs, end quote. And that probably tells you all you need to know about the depth of the plot, right? My favorite comment on Rotten Tomatoes is this one, quote, I give it a couple points for the giraffe, end quote. That kind of says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, the film does have a few moments. If you're going to watch every film about this remarkable gathering of minds, watch it. Uh, but on the whole, it's jumbled. It's unsure of its goals. It's a far cry from the other films that I'm going to discuss. The next film I definitely recommend. It is 1988's Haunted Summer, which was directed by Yvonne Passer and written by Louis John Carlino. Actually, adapted, I guess I should say, by Carlino, because it was based on Anne Edwards' 1972 novel. The cast is solid and subtle. Alice Krieger, you may recall as Star Trek's first Borg queen, plays Mary. Eric Stoltz is Percy. Laura Dern is Claire. Philip Anglum is Byron. And Alex Winter, yes, from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, is Polidori. No complaints here. This is less fantastic and more intimate than my favorite film about this gathering, but that's not a criticism. It moves toward humanizing these brilliant and troubled souls. These people were living in a sort of dreamlike world all their own of art and inspiration, and in a very real way, Mary Shelley and, to perhaps a lesser degree, John Polidori, were the adults in the room. And Mary Shelley most certainly was taking in the dangers as well as the exhilarations of being in this crowd. And in fact, some of her work, major works like Frankenstein and The Last Man, are about responsibility. And she sees <laughs> that, that characters like Byron and Percy, don't necessarily see the flip side of freedom being responsibility. Krieger, in particular, has received great praise for her portrait of Mary Shelley, and she has the acting chops to pull that off. And speaking of acting chops, another actress who does this very well is Elle Fanning in the 2017 biopic Mary Shelley directed by Haifa Al-Mansur and written by Emma Jensen. 
Besides Elle Fanning in the title role, there's also Douglas Booth as Shelley, Tom Sturridge as Byron, Belle Powley as Claire Claremont, and Ben Hardy as Polidori. I think Haunted Summer is quite strong through and through. I think Mary Shelley, on the other hand, has some things it does extremely well and some things where it just drops the ball. But one of the things it does extremely well is that whole idea of Mary Shelley being the adult in the room and being especially aware of what her mother's legacy means and how it influences her own life, how she wants it to influence her own life and her own work. Ideas play a big role in this film, and that's as it should be. I should also mention Stephen Delane as William Godwin. Very nice turn there. And Ben Hardy's Polidori is the best Polidori I've seen. Quite well done. The film strikes some off notes for me, especially Tom Sturridge's Lord Byron, who is frankly kind of ridiculous. There's also an overly saccharine ending that attempts to undo some of the powerful storytelling about the darker side of Percy Shelley, his hedonism, his self-centeredness, his willingness to put himself before everyone and everything else, including even the health of his children. One of the themes of the film is the cost of Mary's relationship with Percy, the fact that this put her own family relationships in jeopardy, the fact that he lost his child with his first wife, and that, in fact, his first wife committed suicide. The filmmakers missed, I think, a really important opportunity to bring into the story Fanny Imlay. It would not have taken much at all to point out that Mary Shelley wasn't the only daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft, that Mary Wollstonecraft had an older daughter, before she met William Godwin, Fanny Imlay, and that Fanny lived with the family as well. I bring this up because it could have only taken just a couple of lines to point out that this other Wollstonecraft daughter also committed suicide, in part as a result of Mary running away with Percy. It seems odd that the film hits the Wollstonecraft legacy so hard, but completely erases Fanny Imlay altogether. All of these suicides and all of these uh, tragic costs, including the loss of Mary and Percy's child, later children, all of these things feed directly into the making of Frankenstein. Despite its missteps, however, I think this is a very strong film, and it's very much worth seeing, particularly for Elle Fanning's performance. And that brings us to my favorite film. Now, your mileage may vary. This is a somewhat eccentric film, but to my way of thinking, it is brilliant. It is 1986's Gothic, screenplay by Stephen Voke. That should tell you something right there. Fantastic author. Directed by Ken Russell, this is the movie that introduced the late, great Natasha Richardson in the role of Mary Shelley. And again, this is an actress who can handle this kind of intellectual and complex role beautifully. And as far as I'm concerned, no actor has come close to Gabriel Byrne's 
portrayal of Lord Byron. He gets the motivations and the persona of Byron. Before I recorded this, I was asking myself, am I simply biased because Gabriel Byrne is a favorite actor of mine? But then I realized this was the film that made him one of my favorite actors, and I think he does an admirable job here. The rest of the cast also very strong. Julian Sands as Percy Shelley, Miriam Sear as Claire Claremont, and perhaps the most unusual casting here, Timothy Spall. That's right, Peter Pettigrew himself as Polidori. The more you know about what happened when the gang got together, such as Percy's drug-induced freakouts and crazy dreams, what inspired them? One part, for example, reenacts the scene from the classic Gothic painting Fuseli's The Nightmare. And what ultimately happened to them, such as the nature of Percy's death, well, the more this will seem like a well-informed and evocative montage, rather than a series of very trippy hallucination sequences. Mary's naive intelligence and her ability to soak up everything that was happening around her, and, of course, ultimately give it back in the form of Frankenstein, Percy's eccentricity, Byron's, um, Byronness aren't the easiest things to capture, and this film does the most successful job of it I've seen while recognizing the complicated dynamics of the group. It holds up as a psychological horror film in its own right, as well as an origin story for Frankenstein. That said, it never loses the sense that these individuals were larger than life, half real people and half legends. And so if you're looking for something a bit more intimate and personal, then Haunted Summer or Mary Shelley may be a bit more to your taste. So, all that said, I would recommend, definitely, that you watch 1988's Haunted Summer, 2017's Mary Shelley, and 1986's Gothic. All of these are available on DVD. And hey, if you don't have anything else to do, there's always 1988's Rowing with the Wind, too. There's a giraffe. And with that, I want to thank you for joining me throughout 2018 for looking back into genre history. Happy birthday to the book that started it all as far as modern science fiction is concerned, Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. And... Best wishes to you as you bring this year to a close. I wish you the happiest of holiday seasons, and I look forward to joining you again soon, in 2019, with something completely different, as we look back into genre history. Thank you. Oh, hymns, hymns. Now, I'm expecting with you because she's so, you know what I mean, as keen as out. Christmas cards will be on the doorstep tomorrow. I'm telling you, it'll not be long. It'll not be long indeed, Amy. Merry, let me, I'm going to beat you to it. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Hey, there you go. Love you, Lose. Right then, it is 1st of December. No, it's not. It's kind of first week in December, should I say. So, you know, wishing you all the best for the, the holiday season. If holiday season's not your thing, well, I'm just wishing you the best indeed. Do think about Patreon, honestly, man. Like you say, 250 quid I was overdrawn for a month. Lloyd's bloody bank do 
overdraft charges daily as well. That's a pain. That is a pain as well. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there